Good morning, everybody. Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development. It's our privilege to have with us Rob Zapier, who is an emergency manager with the US Coast Guard. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Great to see you. Thanks very much for doing this. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, quite an honor. Great to have you here. And I'm just chatting with you before we went live. You were sharing about you've had quite a, a different route and that you come from a fire safety, firefighting background. How about you tell us the how you arrived in emergency management? Well, it, it, it actually started about 25 to uh, 26 years ago when I first started as a firefighter. Uh, started out as a volunteer firefighter. But in the same time, I also volunteered as uh, an um, extra person at the uh, Crawford County Emergency Management Agency. So uh, that was back then, uh, emergency management was a very new field. Uh, FEMA had just kind of come into its infancy. Uh, it had always been around and uh, it kind of broke everything down into Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency and then into Crawford County, which was the county that I started out with. So very young, I was uh, about 17 years old. Uh, and I, I worked with the, my very first emergency manager, manager which was uh, Terry Brown. Uh, he was new to the field too. Uh, looking back, he seemed a lot older. I was very much younger, and uh, we started out in the basement of the courthouse in an old bomb shelter. So the old civil defense bomb shelters. Uh, my first job was to clear out all the uh, civil defense bomb shelter um, expired material, all the food, all the water, uh, stuff that was stuffed there uh, basically during the Cold War. Uh, after that, I, I joined the Navy uh, as, a, as a firefighter. Uh, I actually worked on, on ships and, and became very knowledgeable in the aircraft firefighting field as well as the shipboard firefighting field. And then uh, around uh, 2000, I was able to be hired on um, for the Department of Defense working for the Navy as a civilian firefighter. So, civil defense, uh, so uh, as a civilian firefighter, I Came up through the ranks um, all the way up until about probably about five years ago when I made battalion chief in Vicenza, Italy. So one of the advantages of working as a civilian firefighter for the government is you're able to kind of move around the world, not just in the United States. So I had the opportunity and the good fortune to be hired on in uh, Vicenza, Italy uh, for the U.S. Army um, at the U.S. Army Garrison Elderly, Caserma Elderly. And there I, I be, became a battalion chief. But one of my jobs as a battalion chief was to also uh, represent the fire department at the emergency operations center there. So that's where I kind of started really going into emergency management uh, area. Um, and I started uh, basically tailoring my education, uh, all my continuing, continuing education towards emergency management. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to be hired uh, for uh, Iwakuni. Uh, which was uh, Iwakuni, Japan. It was a Marine Corps uh, air station. And that air station had just gone over a major renovation. Uh, the Japanese government put in uh, millions of dollars towards uh, upgrading this base from a small sleepy base to um, the new headquarters for Carrier, Carrier Air Wing 5, uh, one of the, um, where all the F-18s and F-22s would then be based. So they wanted to get it out of Tokyo and put it there to another part of the island, which was uh, less populated. And all of a sudden I found myself as the installation emergency manager for a new uh, operating base, basically. So a lot of, uh, lot of le lessons learned there, a lot of growing pains, uh, but a lot of uh, real world experiences. So if you're gonna be an emergency manager, Japan is the place to learn. Uh, it's got everything. It's got 
tornado. It's got, except for tornadoes, it's got volcanoes, it's got tsunamis, it's got earthquakes, uh, it's got mudslides, uh, yeah, you name it, it's got that emergency. So I got really well-rounded very quickly. And as, as the installation emergency manager, my job was to uh, also be the uh, emergency operations center manager as well. So got to run my uh, first uh, emergency operations center. And then uh, like all things in the government, they have an expiration date after five years, we're, we're kind of forced to go back into the United States. So I was able to um, obtain a job with the US Coast Guard here in Duluth, Minnesota, where I work with the Marine Safety Unit um, here in, uh, in Minnesota. And so now I, I get to round out my pollution response and hazmat response uh, uh, career, uh, so, so to speak. So here we are today, um, just, uh, just in the middle of COVID-19 uh, or near the end of it, hopefully. And uh, so we're, we're moving on, uh, new challenges and new opportunities. What an amazing story. Can you can you share with us um, an experience that you had maybe in Japan responding to an emergency and um, how you did that, what it was like? Well, um, I have we had many different emergencies. Uh, I, I think there's the two that really stand out uh, in on two ends of the spectrum. Uh, the first one was um, a mudslide that happened um, a few years back that really hit Japan by surprise. Uh, and it actually didn't make CNN news. Uh, it ended up killing about 243 people, unfortunately, uh, but it started out as a simple rain event. So uh, it wasn't a typhoon. It wasn't uh, something that was really projected. It just started out as a rainstorm. But uh, in, in the July of that year uh, that it happened, we ended up getting 17 inches of rain in, a in about a 24 to 48-hour period. Uh, Japan is, is prone to mudslides. They, they, they know about these mudslides. They actually reinforce their, their hillsides. Uh, they have practiced it. However, like anything, when things take you by surprise, uh, it usually evolves slowly, but then ends up uh, quickly turning into a disaster. Uh, and what, it, what I found out through human nature is people don't want to believe that there's a disaster happening until it actually happens. So one of the jobs as an emergency manager is we are the doom and gloom uh, people. We have to tell people things that nobody wants to hear or wants to believe. And um, the one thing I was working with uh, there at, at uh, Iwakuni was that I was tied in with the emer uh, emergency dispatch center, uh, which was happened to be in the same building. And I got a phone call saying, hey, there's, there's flooding in some of the major uh, arteries in the city. So understand that we work on a base. Everything within the fence line is ours. Everything outside the fence line is very political and uh, very sensitive. Um, however, I understand that a lot of people who work on the base live outside the base. It's not just the military members, but it's also uh, the civilians that are Japanese that work for, for the United States government. Uh, without them, uh, a lot of our functions don't work. So knowing that right up front, uh, I was able mm -hmm. to get a hold of our commander and say, look, we, we may have a problem and we need to stand up the operations center. Uh, I can't, I can't, um, I can't stress enough how, how important it is to stand up an EOC early and often because you can always stand it down. However, uh, when you have flooding happening and when you have things uh, starting to uh, clog up arteries, you have to rely on people to come into the operation centers. 
So back then, we didn't really have a good grasp on virtual EOCs like we have today because of the pandemic. So you have to physically get people in. If you wait until all their roads are flooded, you're going to be by yourself at the EOC, which is exactly what happened to me because the CO of the base was reluctant to bother people at the time. Because remember, we have to kind of predict, and sometimes we predict wrong, just like the weatherman does, but we have to predict emergencies. Um, and in this case, it had happened where we had a very, very much a skeleton crew to handle a major disaster where uh, we end up uh, having trains being wiped off the map train stations, whole neighborhoods uh, gone uh, in, in, uh, in the Hiroshima area. So uh, we, were, we were also worried about our own base. Uh, however, our base didn't sustain anything except some minor flooding, but the people cost was, was huge. So we ended up having to close down a lot of facilities and a lot of uh, infrastructure because we just couldn't get our people in. Or, and when I say our people, I'm, I mean Japanese host nationals as well as military people who were stuck um, outside the base and unable to come in. So that was one of the first experiences of, of how human capital uh, kind of affects the emergency management portion of it. When you can't get the people in that you need, you end up doing it all. So just like an instant command system, if you're uh, if you're an on-scene commander or instant commander, you tend to wear all the hats until you are able to give those duties to other people and expand your incident management system. Uh, here, I was I had to wear a lot of hats and and I had to do it for over 24 hours, zero sleep, uh, but we were able to do it. And the second instance uh, was uh, working with the military. We had a jet uh, that had collided with. Uh, uh, KC-130. Uh, it was very tragic. They were doing uh, refueling. Uh, something happened. Uh, the jet happened uh, happened to hit the KC-130, which is a tanker. It's a C-130. It's been converted into an air tanker. Um, that air tanker went down with all hands. Uh, the the jet had two people. They had a uh, a pilot and the rear uh, uh, rear officer. Uh, the Rear officer was able to eject. Um, they both ejected, actually, but only one survived. So I had to work with uh, J Japanese National Defense Force uh, at that point in time to try to recover uh, not only debris, but personnel and, um, and, and conduct a search and rescue mission at the same time. So the United States has always been one to look for their own. Uh, however, there, this was an exercise in patience where you we had a basically a mutual aid agreement with Japan that they conduct all the search and rescues uh, and, and and search missions. We support them uh, because it is in their in their territory. It's their sovereign land, um, and the Japanese don't really use emails. Once again, uh, our technology has evolved to the point where uh, we want to to send emails and pick up phones. Um, now you have a language barrier as well as a technology barrier. The Japanese use fax machines. They fax stuff. They have the capability of faxing maps from the field uh, directly into emergency operations centers. Uh, I had one fax machine line, probably the only one in the base, and that's how we communicated back and forth with the Japanese. Everything was through fax. Um, unfortunately, we were unable to recover all the people in the KC-130. We were able to recover one pilot, and we did have one person that was rescued, which was, which was good. Um, but that that was another lesson that really stuck out in my mind is is cooperating with other governments um, 
and knowing that they don't do the same thing we do. And we have to respect that, uh, but we have to let the process play out. So those are two examples. I, I hope I didn't talk too long about them. But. No, that's really good, Robert. I we haven't spoken to someone before and, and shared about um, dealing with another international agency, someone um, who's running an agency that's not part of your own government or your own department or even your own nation. So the incident command system may be different. So what are some of the similarities and what are some of the differences that you've noticed in your time in Italy and in Japan with dealing with emergencies? Well, in, in Italy, of course, we're talking apples and oranges between Japanese and European uh, agencies. So starting out with the European or the Italian agency, uh, they're, they're set up uh, pretty well, almost parallel to how we, uh, we are set up. Now, when I say that, I, I talk about departments. Uh, they have fire departments, police departments. They have uh, their military branch. They have a military police style or state police style branch. Uh, and they also have a, a large network of emergency preparedness staff. They're quite used to emergencies or, or disasters just like we are. Um, they're, they're set up um, basically with, with the mindset that you have very much compartmentalized uh, processes. You have the fire department does the fire department stuff, police department does the police department stuff, uh, and, and they're melded together by their emergency preparedness program. Uh, or civil civil preparedness is what they were, they would be called, and um, they tend to uh, not really use the incident command system like we're formerly used to. Uh, the The best thing I can tell you that they would use is is like a departmental type emergency operations center where each department has their own specific uh, thing. They don't use emergency support functions like a lot of people use. And and to be honest with you, a lot of people are now going into department. Uh, style EOCs because uh, emergency set, emergency uh, um, uh, the 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 ESFs are not sometimes appropriate for what you need to do. Uh, so they they try to keep things local. They don't they don't really broadcast out into a big uh, national type system. Uh, everything's kind of broke down a little bit into that that uh, in, into that process. Japan, on the other hand, um, they're very they're very much strictler for the rules and the routine so if if something's written down that you will do a b and c and then do x y and z if you start doing x y and z first all things stop they 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 follow strict guidelines and and if you don't follow strict guidelines there is a complete shutdown and reset of the system where in europe and the united states i think we're more able to like water off of duck's back kind of thing. Let's let's go ahead and, and redirect or, or, or reassess, but the process doesn't stop. But in Japan, it does. And so you have to make sure you do things by the book with the Japanese. And the Japanese also have a very robust uh, emergency preparedness program. Uh, they also work uh, uh, also uh, with their volunteer organizations uh, like an, like a Red Cross type situation. So they use those community-based um, volunteer organizations to help run uh, their emergencies. And for instance, during the mudslide, uh, because this was a long event uh, and our part of the emergency had ended fairly early in, in the mudslide. However, because our base wasn't directly affected, 
uh, I was able or had the opportunity uh, to volunteer with the Japanese and assisting in, in, in uh, doing uh, search and rescue. So uh, I, I was able to take off my EO, uh, the EM hat, put on my volunteer cap uh, and go into their system. And basically they're almost set up same, similar to the United States where you have a operations center where you end up going into, you register, you get your equipment, you get your assignments. Uh, it's not like they hand you a 204, ICS 204 for a job assignment. So this is your job assignment. You're, you're basically assigned a, a work leader that work leader will bring you out and uh, they say, okay, here's your area. Uh, we need to dig out, physically dig out these five houses and see what we can find. Uh, some of it was just assisting with the local person that owned that house to help recover out of there. And we were just there to do manual labor. And there's other situations where they were actually looking for, for personnel. Uh, so I was able to do both of those. Uh, and uh, then once that work period is done, uh, they do have safety breaks. They do they do come up with with a rudimentary rudimentary plan. Once that's done, they end up transporting you back to the, the to the preparedness or operations center. You register out, and then you're able to to go back home. So similar in our in our in the way that we do actual operations here in the United States, um, their planning section. I was not able to see uh, how they do that. But once again, their plans are actually uh, you know, to the letter and they're not deviated from. So those are two things or differences. That's, that's a really interesting comparison. I'm just talking about comparisons, looking at the last year and things moving very virtual. Um, how, has thing, how have things changed for you being an emergency manager during this time of COVID? Well, that was, this has been, I would say almost the last two years, uh, a very interesting process. So one of the unique things I have here in this area of responsibility is that uh, our AOR or area of responsibility covers basically Northern Minnesota, uh, Northern Wisconsin, the state of, and the Northern uh, or the upper peninsula of, of Michigan. And then bordering that also is Canada. So Ontario, uh, um, there's there, there's the, the southern part of Canada. So we have to basically worry about international relations as well as interstate relations. Um, one of the things that we've always done and, and I've always done is anytime there's a meeting, anytime there's a, a situation where you have to get a group together, you, you do that. You, you pick a time, you take a pick a place and everyone gathers and uh, you complete conduct your meetings, you conduct your, your uh, seminars, you conduct your exercises that way. Uh, but COVID stopped all that. Everybody got isolated and everybody had to start working out of pockets. Uh, and for the U.S. Coast Guard, we were able to you know, fairly quickly figure out how to talk to each other. And I think all organizations and agencies figured out how to talk to each other without being face-to-face -face in the same room. The one problem we have, and I think we continue to have that, is that though we can talk to each other, it's hard to talk to everybody outside. So kind of like in emergency management, you come up with a common operating picture, uh, you know, where the lowest person on the chain to the highest person on the chain kind of sees the same thing that happens at the same time. And usually those common operating pictures could be like Web EOC or, 
or other type of electronic platforms. Uh, we started using, uh, believe it or not, we, we, we at the Coast Guard kind of went from Zoom, uh, but then we found out there's, there's security issues uh, with that. So we end up going to uh, Microsoft CVR Teams. Um, this CVR Teams, uh, I think the, the Microsoft Teams concept was pick, picked up by a lot of agencies. The good thing about that was there's a lot of ability to, to both share the same kind of virtual platform. And uh, we started out using that as meetings. Uh, and uh, that was something that protected everybody, kept everyone isolated. You can do it from the comfort of your own home, or you can gather a small group of people in a meeting room and then join teams that way. So we were able to start talking interagency or internationally even through teams. Um, but like all commercial products, those things come at a cost. Uh, there's licensing agreements that have to be uh, dealt with. Uh, and, you know, the United States government and as well as other agencies sometimes do not have that, that funding. Uh, the good thing about what we were doing was we were able to send out guest invites. So even if, if let's say, a, uh, a small county emergency management system didn't have enough or a lot of funding, uh, they were still able to join in uh, because we were able to send out an invite. Uh, like all things, things come to an end here in June. Uh, the our teams is going to go away. We're going to have an internal type of teams for the Coast Guard, but that comes up with its own little challenges because now we have to worry about cybersecurity. Uh, everyone's worried about ransomware. Everyone's worried about hacking systems. Uh, every you know everyone's worried about that backdoor that can be exploited through these virtual platforms. So we did what we had to do initially in COVID to try to talk to each other. Um, but one of the things that we realized was that there are still emergencies that happen uh, there, regardless if there's a pandemic or not, you still have to have bodies uh, or people hitting the road. And we still have to perform our functions as, as agencies. We can't just say, oh, it's COVID, uh, so we're not going to respond. And, and one of the early lessons we found out was actually through the Environmental Protection Agency that the Coast Guard works with closely. Uh, one of the things that the EPA was doing was the wildfires out west for, from, from where I'm at. Uh, they had to physically have firefighters on the ground. And the EPA had a role in, in um, searching for like hazmat and stuff after a house burns. Uh, it still has to be basically decontaminated. Not everything burns in a house. Uh, so prior to, to allowing pr people back, it has to be basically deconned in a way. All hazmat material has to kind of be picked up. And they were able to figure out that we still need to have people on the ground. How do we separate people? How do we track people? How do we stay COVID safe but still do our job? So part of that was uh, doing meetings virtually. Uh, and then only the people that were, were really required to be with each, each other would meet and do that what they had to do, uh, tried to you know wear masks, uh, do their job, but they would stay in pods and then continue on. So one of the things that... Um, that our, our Coast Guard has to do is working with the EPA, especially in my field, is, is oil response. Uh, and if there's a discharge, oil discharge, how do we how do we get all these major players together uh, and not physically in the same room? Uh, fortunately, at that time, I was going through an exercise cycle where I had to actually either do a full-scale exercise or a functional exercise. Uh, we were going to do a full-scale exercise pre-COVID. Uh, of course, everyone said, look, I can't travel. We're not unless this is a real world event. We can't we can't do anything. 
Uh, however, I still have to do a full, I have to do an exercise. Uh, so we came up with the concept of doing a functional exercise. Well, for those who don't understand what functional exercise is versus full scale, full scale, you have moving parts. Everybody goes out and plays as if it was for real. Functional is more of an incident command post exercise. So you have all the major players that would go into a traditional incident command post, um, you know, from your unified command down to your planning section, your finance section, your operations section, your logistics section, and so on and so forth. And they all have to gather and do an incident action plan in an operational period and then uh, come up with a written plan at the end uh, on how you would do something. So we came up with the concept of a hybrid incident command post. Now, it's been done before in other agencies, never in Coast Guard. So we, and never at the scale that we had to, to incorporate. Uh, we had a scenario where in the middle of Lake Superior, there was a collision between two ships that uh, caused a huge oil spill. And we had to um, involve Canada, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, various um, federal agencies, travel agencies, all that had to come together, form a unified command, uh, and we had to do it both physically and virtually. So we were able to set up an incident command post in Houghton, Michigan, uh, which we had about 40 to 60 people uh, at the command post. Now, sounds like a lot of people, but a lot of some of those people were evaluators, controllers, uh, things or people that would help actually run the exercise. So fortunately, Michigan Tech University was able to uh, assist with us and, and, and provided us a huge assembly room that was able to be divided into different uh, sections. And those sections all had occupancy loads uh, that allowed us to control the amount of people there. There was a COVID protocol that we followed. And uh, we also used Teams platform to incorporate all the people who could not travel or would not travel. Uh, and we actually had, instead of just having to say, um, physically all the people in planning sitting there in the, in the planning section, we had half the people virtually and half the people uh, physically. And our challenge was to make sure that we did not freeze out the people online and, you know, overcome human nature in, in several different ways where te technically when you're in a group, you kind of stay in a group and you forget about everyone around you. But we had to impress upon the fact that part of your group is online. So the decisions that you make, almost kind of like a, a Star Trek idea where you have a monitor and you have a group of people on the monitor and understanding that you who are physically at, at the instant command post to the virtual person, you are on a monitor. Uh, just there, as far as they're concerned, they're physically there and you're not. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you combine and keep people engaged, keep the collaboration going and do help you help the section chiefs do their jobs? So that's what we had on May 12th. We actually conducted an exercise, a very, very a good exercise, a lot of lessons learned. Were we able to do it virtually and hybrid? Short answer is yes. Um, did we do it well? Short answer is no, uh, because that's why we have these exercises. We were a beta platform, so we learned a lot of lessons, but we know how to do it better next time. Um, so COVID forced us to, to figure out how do we use our technology and use our technology to the utmost uh, in the same time, blend it with people who are physically on the ground. Uh, we still have, I think, a ways to go, but um, all agencies, especially when you're dealing with international agencies and other state agencies, 
we have to understand once again, just like I learned in, in, in Japan and in Italy, uh, everyone has their own sovereign rules and we have to be able to play within those rules and we have to know how to, um, to, to meld those rules together so you can achieve an objective. And I think we were able to do that. Um, but like, like, like I said, like all exercises, they're designed to find friction points. Uh, they're designed to find the chinks in the armor, which we did, and uh, we were able to move on. So work on the after-action report now for that. It'll, it'll be interesting to, to see what people think about that in the future. Sounds really complex. You know, you've got the evaluation of people and the process going on and you're dealing with COVID as a separate type of, you know, complexity in, in what you're doing. And you've got the, the virtual being added in to the process. And then you've got the incident itself to try to deal with. There's a lot going on in there that I guess you wouldn't have in a normal day-to-day -day incident command response. Absolutely. The, the one thing that we found was one of the lessons learned was the technology doesn't work like we want it to work. Things fail, things don't connect correctly. Right. And one of the things that I learned and, and I knew was may, may have happened or would happen was that we all return to what we know. We always right. return back to our base instinct. Uh, so when everyone who was separating these rooms and they were, like I said, there was occupancy loads that had to be maintained, when they could no longer connect with each other because there were some technical difficulties uh, and people got frustrated very quickly. Instead of working through that technical issue, they just said, okay, we're just going to meet in person. Well, the problem with that was <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you have to physically stay separated. However, humans just, look, we got masks on. We'll stay six feet apart. Uh, and we're just going to start moving forward because in their mind, their objective was to complete an incident action plan. Mm -hmm. So they only had a finite period of doing it. Uh, they had about 10 hours to do it. Uh, and using an operational period needs about at least 12 hours, depending on how complex the situation is. And this is a very, very complex situation involving international um, agencies as well as state, local, and federal agencies from all over the place. So everybody has a dog in the fight. Everybody needs to have certain uh, widgets uh, created and met. Uh, so they felt very pressured and in, in, in making sure that they had to the, the objective met, which was having an instant action plan done by the end of the exercise. So they just punted. So they said, okay, technology's <laughs> not working. We're going to get everybody uh, in the room that's in the room. Everybody online, sorry, uh, but we have to get this done. So they kind of lost, initially they lost the, the, um, the vision of, of having everybody part of this, this exercise and everyone have equal say and equal um, value uh, when it comes to where they're at in the cyber world. So uh, they did start going kind of grouping together. We had to do basically a quick little pause X and say, look, you, you know, I understand it's frustrating. Uh, the technology is not working the way you, we intended it to be designed, but you guys got to have a, you got to think outside the box. You're, you're going to have to figure out, uh, you're going to have to slow down. And, and if, if the IAP doesn't get done, it doesn't get done. But the main thing is how do we do this together, you know, both online and in a COVID environment. I think it'd be, I know the exercises were done virtually, 100% virtually, and they were very successful uh, because everybody had to stay online. And then there's exercises that were done 100% physical. And, and we know how to do that pretty well through, through many years of, of doing this. Uh, but it's that, that combined hybrid that no one really got used to. And we have to, we have to start getting used to that. Um, because I don't think um, 
things in the future will, will change. Uh, once, you, once something happens to a person or a, a community or a culture, you can really never go back. Uh, you can't go back pre-COVID uh, because we're, we're in a new era, a new age, and we really need to start yeah. um, to living, living like that, unfortunately. That's right. This is this has been really fascinating. I think before we wrap up, would you mind giving some some advice to someone who is uh, just thinking about getting into emergency management? What would you suggest that they do in terms of experiences to prepare themselves? Well, the fortunately here in the United States, one of the easiest ways to get experience uh, is through volunteering. So I started out as a volunteer firefighter. I volunteered for the Crawford County Emergency Management Agency of, of you, these, these opportunities are in your local area. They're in your local uh, community. Uh, there are some places have uh, paid fire departments, which is different uh, or difficult to uh, to get into. But there are other organizations that you can help. Uh, the American Red Cross, for instance, Salvation Army. Uh, a lot of these places, they also follow the National Incident Management System. So they're very uh, uh, versed on NIMS. Um, and FEMA has and offers a lot of online courses that are mm -hmm. free. So they have independent study courses, which even me uh, as a paid emergency manager still uses those independent study courses for continuing education. Uh, these are the basic courses that you need uh, that you can get. A lot of them since COVID now have become online. Some of these courses like uh, the ICS 300 and 400 courses used to be only offered uh, in the classroom, but since COVID, these things are now offered online. So you can get a lot of your base certificates that you're going to need no matter what. Um, the next thing is, of course, education uh, under the process. Uh, you know, I was able to go through fire, get my education through, a, uh, I've got a bachelor's and associates in fire science. Um, and you just need to figure out what your niche is and, and, and learn how to then turn that niche into to emergency management. Uh, it, you don't have to come up from any special place. You don't have to come from fire. You don't have to come from police. You don't have to really come from, from anything. You just have to start with uh, an organization that does emergency management, emergency preparedness, uh, get in at the ground floor and get that experience. Because unfortunately, you can go to college all, all you want, never have any kind of experience. That doesn't make you a well-rounded emergency manager. That makes you that gives you an understanding of what emergency management is and the processes, but you need that inter interrelationship between uh, your community, uh, both as a volunteer and as a professional, uh, in order order to be a well-rounded EM. So that's that's my advice for anybody trying to come into the EM, EM field. That's great. I love that you said find your find your niche or find your niche. I think that's really important because it not only it gives you a direction to go in, but it actually gives you that sense of satisfaction that connects yeah. with who you are as a person. Not every part of emergency management is going to be really exciting and grab the attention of every person in the same way. Robert Zapier, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom, sharing your experiences and um, letting our students and the audience know about your history. And I do want to ask, you said you're going to be rounding out your career back where you are right now. Does that mean you're going to be retiring soon? Well, <laughs> I still have a little ways to go. Uh, I, uh, we do want to try to get back to Europe. Uh, working with the federal government, like I said, I do have the opportunity uh, to try to get back to uh, maybe Germany or once again Italy uh, and uh, try to round out from there. Um, 
but like anything, we don't really retire. We just kind of find other things to do at the end. <laughs> so, so hopefully I have a few more years left, but uh, after that, I'll be, I'll be, probably be volunteering again, once again. Well, thank you, Robert, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, doctor. Thanks for having me.